This is HeartWise, offering practical tips and time-proven guidelines to make your life healthier, happier, and more fulfilling. Today you'll learn simple Bible-based principles for building and maintaining optimum mental and physical health, all while deepening your relationship with your Creator. I'm your HeartWise host, Charles Mills. Today we focus on things we should avoid, and I mean run away from, bypass, shun, however way you want to say it. There are items we may willingly be putting into our bodies that can do us some serious harm, and we may not even know it. Our guide through this nutritional landmine is our good friend, Dr. Michael Greger from nutritionfacts.org. He and his team review every English language scientific study on clinical nutrition, and then they share their knowledge through the internet, radio, television, and motion pictures. This guy is everywhere, and I'm so glad he has agreed to be with us today. Dr. Greger, welcome back to HeartWise. I'm so glad to be here. You're doing such wonderful work. Thank you very much. Now, things to avoid. Okay, number one. There are many of us who should not even be in the same room with chocolate. Why Why would you say that? So in my uh, latest batch of videos, yes. actually just went up on the site and latest uh, DVD, I talk about the role of chocolate in acne. Mm. And so originally we think, well, it's just the milk in milk, mostly milk chocolate. Mm. It's just a dairy and so maybe if we stick to dark chocolate, be okay. But then the studies show that people eating dark chocolate still had an exacerbation of their acne. So then they say, okay, well, maybe it's the sugar mm-hmm. in the dark. Maybe it's not the chocolate itself. Maybe it's just the sugar. And so they said, well, let's just give people cocoa powder. So cocoa powder is chocolate without the fat without the sugar, to see if it's really something like with the cocoa bean itself that's causing it. And indeed, they found that it worsened acne a few ounces of cocoa powder a day. Now, that's a lot of cocoa powder, but it does suggest that if you you know, are, are dealing with acne, you should try cutting out chocolate and cocoa to see if your symptoms improve. You know, you identified in that uh, sequence of studies exactly how the scientific process works. We've always heard that chocolate was bad, but then science did things that we usually don't do. They divided it up into its different elements. Is this part of the scientific study? Yeah, so that and, that, and that's really the critical process yeah. when it comes to science, and it's actually very difficult to do when it comes to food. Now, typically, I mean, this so for drugs, it's that you give people the drug versus a sugar pill mm-hmm. that looks exactly like the drug, and so you don't know if you're taking the active drug or the sugar pill to kind of get rid of any placebo effects, but it's very difficult yes. to make placebo chocolate. <laughs> I mean, people tend to notice what they're putting into their mouths, and so if you split people up into uh, you eat broccoli, you don't eat broccoli, and the broccoli eaters do better, maybe it's just mind over matter. Maybe, look, people know broccoli is good for them, yeah. and so they eat a lot of broccoli, and they think they're doing something great, and good things happen, like their arthritis gets better or whatever. Now, how do we know it's just their their brain tricking them to make actually healing them themselves, and it's not actually the broccoli itself? And so that's what was so uh, nice about this study. What they actually did is they put the cocoa powder into capsules, opaque capsules, mm-hmm. so you couldn't actually see if you were uh, swallowing the cocoa or 
they use just uh, like jello powder, basically, right. in the placebo group. And so everyone took these handfuls of capsules every day, didn't know if they were in the chocolate goop or not, because, look, we uh, some people you know, have this feeling chocolate's worsening their acne. So you give people a lot of chocolate, maybe just the stress of thinking, oh, I'm going to get acne. Maybe the stress is giving you acne. So you secretly give people chocolate in these capsules. And, yep, the ones that were actually taking the chocolate, their acne did get worse compared to those taking placebo. But that's how you can really narrow it down. Um, and that's one of the really beautiful things in the scientific method. I like that. And that's why your website and what you say on this program is so meaningful. This is not anecdotal. This is not suggested. This is proven scientifically, and science knows how to break things down and find exactly what the problem is. So I'm glad you explained that to us because we need to know. We need to know what to trust. And what we trust is something that removes the human element and leaves just behind the science. Am I on the right track? Absolutely. Okay, very good. Now, with that said, let's now move on to some other things that you've done recently of things that we need to avoid. Marijuana. Now, this is a contentious topic. This is a hot topic around this country right now. What does science tell us about the benefits and risks of marijuana, especially when it comes to our brains? The reason we haven't had a lot of data is because the drug used to be illegal. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to study something that's illegal. But now, since it's been years since the commercialization of marijuana in some states, you can actually see, well, what effects did it have? And right. since the commercialization of marijuana in Colorado, uh, its use among adolescents and adults has increased significantly, 50% increase on uh, the first year. And, uh, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics is very clear marijuana is not a benign drug for teens. The teen brain is actually still developing, and marijuana can cause abnormal brain development. So that's why the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Academy of uh, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry both officially oppose legalization. Now, the adult brain appears to be relatively immune to long-term changes in brain function and structure induced by marijuana use. Marijuana absolutely can impair cognition, cause uh, actually structural, adverse structural changes in the adult brain, but within about six months of stopping it, the brain function comes back. That cannot be said for those that start under age 25. Your brain actually doesn't complete development until approximately age 25. So before then, it's a really vulnerable period, and there's now been studies that have followed, you know, a thousand people all the way from childhood to age 38, and they found that this decline in brain function, even once stopped, you huh. cannot get the brain function back. There's long-standing neurotoxic effects on the adolescent brain. That's why these leading medical authorities say, absolutely, you should not be exposed to this drug, in the very least, before age 25. Now, you make a point in your presentation about marijuana that this is not your mother's marijuana. What did you mean by that? Yeah, yeah at least certainly not your grandmother. Yeah, okay. the, um, the pot now being sold has been selectively bred to increase the THC levels, the kind of active component. And so it's about 10 times stronger. So for people to be like, wait a second, mm. is this just reefer madness revisited? You know, all 
all these scientific authorities trying to scare people. It's all some political thing. Because, look, I, you know, smoked pot back in the 60s, and I didn't, you know, suffer, blah, blah, blah. No, that was a different animal completely. The industry has gotten very good, just like the tobacco industry, concentrated nicotine on purpose to make their drug more addictive. Mm -hmm. The marijuana industry is concentrating THC because they want people to buy their product, and so it's 10 times more potent. So it's like smoking 10 joints to every joint you did back in the 60s. So anyone's experience back in the 60s and 70s cannot be translated into the much more potent drugs on the market today. And you've made it clear that marijuana is not the only area of ill health and nutrition that has been supercharged, supersized. Even the steaks we eat these days are not your grandmother's steaks. Am I right? And how is that possible? Oh, well, because just like you can selectively breed plants Mm -hmm. to have more of one or more, you know, components, you can selectively breed animals. And so what they're looking for in animals is they're looking for fat, the marbling of the uh, muscle tissue with fat. So, uh, you know, venison, game, wild animals, they have extraordinarily lean muscles, so less than 10% calories from fat. That's what you'd see in some vegetables. I mean, that's really extraordinary. Whereas now, uh, you know, meat these days, modern meat, because we fatten them up for slaughter on these feedlots uh, in terms of red meat or for chickens, we've selectively bred them to have excessively fatty tissues and because that adds to mouthfeel and juiciness. And so, you know, it could be 30 40% calories from fat. It's a very different experience than what would would see before. Same thing with processed foods. You know, the industry's always trying to make things saltier and sweeter and fattier because, look, they're trying to outsell their competitor. And so they want to make it as kind of addictive as possible. But unfortunately, lost in that list of priorities is actually the healthiness of the product that they're putting out into the marketplace. Mm, so, listener, we cannot defend our present-day choices because grandma did it and uh, the generations before, and they weren't overweight and they didn't get sick and they didn't lose their minds. Well, that's a different world now, as Dr. Gregor has just mentioned. What we're putting in our bodies, they are very different than they used to be. And as I hear you saying, Dr. Gregor, these things are much more dangerous. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about shark cartilage, soy, and sports strength. Now, how's that for a combination? And we'll talk with Dr. Gregor from nutritionfacts.org more about these items on our return. So everybody stay right where you are. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Whatever they're suffering with, needing weight loss, having a health issue. We see so much chronic disease. We see so many people that are taking so many medications. The idea of using scripture as a biblical prescription for life, I was able to take this physical and spiritual connection and apply it to my life in a huge way. To me, I think the most successful aspect of this Bible study is the simplicity of it. The book itself is just amazing. I'm Dr. James Markham, and I'm a physician who's privileged to be used by God to bring people out of despair and unto the path of lifelong wellness using a plan that is evidence-based and uniquely biblical. It doesn't matter where you're starting from, discovering God's simple, sustainable, biblical prescriptions for life will work for you. 
Biblical Prescriptions for Life is a product of HeartWise Ministries. Start your journey on the path to healing today. Visit biblicalprescriptionsforlife.com. I'd like to think that one day, when we get to heaven, we're going to see a list of people. People like Jared and Susan, who were introduced to Jesus because of something we said. Or maybe it was as simple as a passing smile. But these people will look into their past and be able to say, I'm here because of you. Recently, you may have heard that HeartWise Ministries has begun spreading the gospel to the young, the old, the sick, and the healthy. We want to take this type of medical programming to the non-believer and the person who has closed themselves off to traditional forms of outreach. If you believe as we do and want to support HeartWise so that together we can count more names on the tree of life, please consider donating today at heartwiseministries.org. That's heartwiseministries.org. Welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Charles Mills. Our guest today, Dr. Michael Greger from nutritionfacts.org. This man and his team look at all English language clinical nutrition studies, and they bring them down to our understanding, my understanding, and they put them up on the internet, or they make videos out of them, or they make movies out of them. Dr. Greger, is smiling face can be seen all over the place. If you're a Facebooker, you might want to check it out there as well. He has live blogs that he talks about, takes your questions. Good stuff right there at Nutrition Facts and NutritionFacts.org. Dr. Greger, shark cartilage. The impact on, on the fish of the world besides that, take that, take that away. What is shark cartilage doing to our bodies when we use it nutritionally? Yeah, so the interest in uh, shark cartilage as an anti-cancer agent mm-hmm. arose because many people believe that sharks did not get cancer. And you say, well, why would they think such a thing? Because there's a book uh, <laughs> from some guy who sold shark cartilage supplements, wrote a book called Sharks Don't Get Cancer. And it's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. Sharks certainly did get cancer. And look, even if they didn't, how does that translate? Well, eating their cartilage would not get you. I mean, it's the whole thing was just... <laughs> kind of a crazy marketing scam, but you don't know until you actually put it to the test, which was actually done, to my surprise. They took people with advanced cancers and split them up and gave half shark cartilage, saw not even a single partial response noted in anything, absolutely no beneficial effects to quality of life or any kind of cancer indicators. In fact, they suffered significant gastrointestinal toxicity from the stuff. So completely unsubstantiated, no objective data from benefit from uh, controlled clinical trials. The whole theory as to why cartilage might work against cancers, because cartilage is a tissue that lacks blood vessels. The blood vessels don't actually penetrate into cartilage, and nutrients and oxygen just kind of diffuse in from the outside. And you say, well, wait a second, maybe, so cartilage must have some kind of blood vessel development blocking agents, because otherwise blood vessels would infiltrate, and so maybe that blocking agent would be helpful in starving tumors of their blood supply 
didn't work for shark cartilage, but if we really wanted to eat some of these so-called angiogenesis inhibitors, some of these compounds that prevent the formation of blood vessels and tumors, basically to starve cancer by cutting off the supply lines, we wouldn't be sitting down to cartilage powder. We would eat an apple or drink green tea or turmeric or pomegranates, berries, nuts, soybeans, flaxseeds, broccolis, all of those Foods have been shown to have anti-angiogenic effects for real and not just because some snake oil salesman or shark cartilage salesman (laughs) trying to sell it on the Internet. All right, very good. And I probably speak for sharks everywhere by saying thank you for (laughs) sharing this with us and letting us know what the truth is. Let's move now from sharks to sports drinks. Sports drinks, you drink these things and you're supposed to be able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. What are the ups and the downs of sports drinks, Dr. Greger? The sports drink industry has tried to um, perpetuate this myth that you can't just drink to thirst. You have to be your body's not smart enough to figure out how thirsty you are. You always have to kind of drink. You got to drink before you get thirsty. And of course, this was done by the sports beverages industry trying to get people to drink more Gatorade and similar things. But your body's not stupid. It'll tell you when you need to drink. There's now ample evidence that we can just drink to thirst. And in fact, if you drink too much while you exercise, whether it's pure water or these sports drinks, you can get something called exercise-associated hyponatremia, too little sodium. You can actually kind of wash out the electrolytes from your brain and have seizures or worse. In fact, one of the high-profile cases, a high school athlete who actually died after drinking two gallons of Gatorade. The industry likes to tell people, yeah, you got to get your electrolytes here. No, we get our electrolytes from food. We don't need to take it. And, in fact, it can be dangerous if we drink too much of this stuff. So now, finally, the American College of Sports Medicine is very clear that we should move away from this drink as much as tolerable during exercise message and move very much to emphasize how dangerous it can be to drink too much and that we should drink to thirst and not believe the sports drinks propaganda from the industry. When we are thirsty, if we drink sports drinks or if we drink water, is there any difference between the two of them? I mean, can we make, is that a choice we can make and think that the results are going to come out exactly the same? Water is better. So in terms of performance, right, doesn't dehydration hurt performance? If you actually look at uh, triathletes, for example, there's no correlation between dehydration and marathon finishing times. In fact, those that lost the most water actually had the fastest times, as noted in some other studies. So, I mean, you just don't see, they, they want to purport this kind of, some kind of performance enhancing benefit, but when you actually put it to the test, there is no uh, kind of athletic performance enhancing benefit of sports drinks over water, so it's basically just empty calories, which we don't need. All right, very good. And water is a whole lot less expensive than those sports drinks. We're talking about things we should avoid. And let me ask you about soy. Should we avoid soy? Are there conditions? Are there, are there um, times in our lives or, or conditions of our bodies when we should just stay away from soy? There was concern about women with fibroids. About one in four women um, eventually, sometime in their life, suffered from fibroids, which are these benign tumors in their uterus. Uh, actually, the number one reason uh, women get hysterectomies, have their uterus removed completely, which is major surgery and, of course, uh, lose your uh, ability to have children. So there's been a lot of interest in how do you prevent um, this number one cause of hysterectomies, these fibroid tumors, from forming. 
Well, we know that alcohol consumption is associated with increased risk, particularly beer consumption. Whenever you find a disease for which beer is particularly associated, then you always have to think about hormonal effects because beer have hops in them. And in fact, hops picking women actually start menstruating once they start touching these hops, just Just because it's so powerfully hormonal. There's powerful phytoestrogen found in hops. You say, well, wait a second. Phytoestrogens, what about soybeans? Soybeans have some mild phytoestrogens. Might eating soy increase one's risk of getting fibroids. The reason that we became concerned about this is in the black women's health study, fibroids are two to three times more prevalent among African-American women. And the thinking is, well, maybe they're more likely to be lactose intolerant. Maybe they're drinking more soy milk instead of dairy milk. Well, let's look into soy and fibroids. And it turns out that soy intake was uh, unrelated mm-hmm. to fibroid incidents. So researchers went to Japan where they have the highest per capita soy consumption. So you could really get this really wide range of soy consumption. And what they found is that uh, women who ate more soy had lower hysterectomy rates, so suggesting a potential protective effect against uterine fibroids. So it's not something that uh, we're concerned about, with the exception, perhaps, of soy isoflavone supplements. So you can actually concentrate these soy phytoestrogens into pill form and we don't have data on whether or not that is uh, harmful when it comes to fibroid development. Mm, our guest, Dr. Michael Greger from NutritionFacts.org. I want to end the program with a couple up notes here because we've been talking about things that we may want to avoid or conditions of certain things that we may want to avoid. Kale and cabbage. I know you love kale and cabbage. Tell us, tell us why in 60 seconds we need to include this in our diet. When we think about cholesterol, what's even worse than cholesterol is bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol. What's even worse than LDL cholesterol is oxidized LDL cholesterol. But by eating kale, we can reduce LDL oxidation. Kale is the best of all world's food, low in calories, packed to the hell with nutrition, vitamins, minerals, anti-inflammatory compounds, antioxidant, phytonutrients, you name it. And given its high antioxidant capacity, no wonder had a protective effect against oxidation. Same thing with black cabbage. Uh, what they meant by black cabbage is lacinato kale, also known as dinosaur or Tuscan kale. Mm-hmm. Um, they had people eat a bag of frozen kale and cabbage a day for two weeks, which is great. Keep it in the freezer, pre-washed, pre-chopped, just throw it into any meal. Significant reductions in total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol, even blood sugar levels. Antioxidant capacity of the blood went up, so a significant decrease in oxidized LDL as well. So um, the only caveat is I wouldn't eat them fermented into sauerkraut just because they add too much salt Mm -hmm. and you just get too much sodium if you ate too much sauerkraut. All right, there is good news. Kale and cabbage, yes. Alcohol, no. Marijuana, no. Shark cartilage, no. Sports drinks, no. Soy under certain circumstances. But the good news is there is a whole world of other food out there that we can enjoy and we can have in our refrigerator, in our pantry, and in our stomachs that can bring us a world of good. And Dr. Michael Greger makes sure that we know what those foods are 
on his website, nutritionfacts.org. It is searchable. It is international. It's in different languages. Dr. Greger has books there you can buy. One of my favorites is How Not to Die. I love that book. And it teaches us how to use nutrition to fight off the leading causes of death in this country when it comes to what we put into our bodies. Dr. Greger, always a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom and guidance. I can't wait until next time. Absolutely. And until then, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Michael Greger inviting you to remain heartwise. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on HeartWise. If you'd like more information on how to build and maintain optimum physical, mental, and spiritual health, log on to heartwiseministries.org. HeartWise is a listener-supported program, and your partnership with us would be greatly appreciated. Once again, our web address is heartwiseministries.org. Music